Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is the man that will be joining me for lunch after the show. So, food, be afraid. He is the captain. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very happy to be featuring Half and Half Lemonade Iced Tea IPA by the brilliant folks over at Evil Twin Brewing Company. This is like a summer shandy, but with more alcohol, so yum. And I love a good Arnold Palmer anyway, so this was a must-try for me, and it's earned its own space in prime refrigerator real estate over at my house garage grade three and three-quarter bottle caps out of five. And here's some cheers to our good friends for helping us out this week. First up, big cheers and thanks to James G. in Flossmoor, Illinois. And a big shout out to Christine in Cleveland. Next, a big thank you to Tammy in Washington State. And a big shout out to John K. in Parts Unknown, but also John K., Make sure you return your library books. Here we have a cheers to Norma in Marietta, Georgia. And last but certainly not least, we have Alex in Matthews, North Carolina. Everyone we just mentioned went to our website, truecrimegarage.com, and they clicked on that little Donate to the Beer Fund button. And for that, we thank you. Beer Fund for the Beer Run, B-W-E-R-U-N, Beer Run. And for all of our old episodes, download the Stitcher app. It's free. And we also have a bonus show called Off the Record. Check that out if you haven't. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
Missing person, Jalik Rainwalker. On Friday, November 2nd, 2007, 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker was reported missing from his grandparents' residence in Greenwich, Washington County, New York. Jalik is biracial, with light brown hair and green eyes. At the time of his disappearance, Jalik was 5 foot 6 inches tall, 105 pounds. He is believed to have been wearing blue jeans and black high-top sneakers. Foul play is suspected. Anyone with any information is asked to contact the New York State Major Crimes Unit at 518-783-3211 or email nysvicap at troopers.ny.gov. That's nysvicap at troopers.ny.gov. Jalik Rainwalker was born on August 2nd, 1995 in Albany, New York, to a mother addicted to crack and alcohol. Jalik was diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome, meaning he was exposed to addictive toxic substances in utero that impacted his development. Despite all of our digging, we have never located Jalik's parents' names. Jalik was a good-looking kid with green eyes and a big smile. There are a few photos of Jalik available online, and if you look him up, you'll see a face beaming with personality. But unfortunately, due to Jalik's parental situation, he was put up for adoption shortly after entering this world. From there, he was shuttled around from foster home to foster home, six in all, before Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald adopted him in 2003. Per the Albany Times Union, Jalik lived with the couple and their children for five years, including three years as their adopted son. Stephen and Jocelyn had four other children, three biological sons and one adopted daughter. The kids ranged in age from eight years old up to 14. Jalik also had two biological half-brothers who lived in Albany, New York, about 35 miles from the town of Greenwich, where Jalik lived with his adoptive family in rural upstate New York. As described by our friends over at the Charlie Project on Jalik's case profile page, his adoptive family lived a non-traditional lifestyle. When they first took in Jalik, the family lived about 15 minutes from the village of Greenwich in Washington County. Now, this house was really... The current house was really a back-to-nature type structure. There's no indoor plumbing, and the electricity, the only electricity that the house has, comes from a generator. And, oh, it's just a one-bedroom house. So the family that sleeps together weeps together, I guess. It's easy to say that Jalik's parents were the hippie types. They sold eggs at local farmer's markets and preferred to leave little to no environmental impact 
Jalik was homeschooled by his adoptive parents, and some other local kids were schooled at Jalik's home as well. Now, Jalik had some behavioral problems. According to the Cambridge Greenwich Police Chief, the boy was diagnosed with a number of emotional and psychiatric problems because of his fetal alcohol syndrome and being shuffled around from seven different families in his only 12 years of life. His life was not easy, of course. Misbehavior and lack of understanding of appropriate interaction was to be expected. But his issues resulted in emotional outbursts that could be violent. His adoptive parents stated later that he had rage-filled temper tantrums and that his siblings were afraid of him. His outbursts could last up to an hour. Jalik was very intelligent. He was an avid reader. Before Jalik was adopted, he lived with the Schoen family, and they did plan to adopt him. But after he attacked their daughters when he was seven years old, they decided he could no longer stay in their home. This is when he went to live with Stephen and Jocelyn. Several of the other foster families who had taken in Jalik temporarily over the years said that he was a loving child, but his outbursts were too disruptive for them to feel comfortable offering him a permanent home. This is just a difficult situation. And it's a sad reality that we have this kid who is brought into this world and he's brought into this world a victim immediately. Yeah. And he's given up for adoption. And and to be honest with you, Captain, I thank God that those parents the woman was at least smart enough to give him up for adoption. As rough as that sounds, it doesn't sound like she had the skill set or resources to raise a child. Well, and like you said, I mean, you have trauma happening to you since birth. Right. And then you're being shuffled around. And then you have this situation where people, good people, are attempting to do a good thing. Bring this child into their home. Try to raise them as their own. But because of his issues, it becomes an unbearable situation where now your children might be afraid of, of this kid who, who seems to be a great kid, smart kid, loving child, but at times he's got these outbursts that are violent and at times scary. Yeah, you want to help the kid, but you don't want to put your kid in danger as well. So that's a little background on the events that were leading up to the disappearance of Jalik. Well, let's go over this house really quick because, I mean, that's a very odd situation. Oh, I didn't get into it because I just assumed everybody lived that way. It's almost like they lived in like a hunting cabin, like something that would be okay for the weekend. We're going to go up there. Yeah, there's no electricity, but we have a generator. We're going to spend some time outdoors. That doesn't seem that bad. It seems like a far removed reality compared to how people are living currently. Seven people sleeping in one room too. I don't know how ethical that is, especially when you have a kid you're trying to adopt. It, it just seems a little funny to me. That's the thing. It's it's difficult to talk about it here. Imagine living in that situation. Yeah. And the younger kids probably don't know much different. Now, at the end of October 2007, 12-year-old Jalik had a few rough days. According to Stephen and Jocelyn, Jalik threatened another young boy who was in his homeschool class at their house. 
it's reported the boy was only about five years old. According to Jocelyn and Steven, Jalik said some pretty horrible things to this kid along the lines of a violent sexual assault he intended to perpetrate on him. Now, it's important to bear in mind that we are hearing all of this information about this incident secondhand. He's just a kid himself, so where is he hearing this stuff in order to be able to make those type of threats to somebody else? If, in fact, this went down the way they said it went down. Correct. Because Jalik was homeschooled and the family was somewhat isolated from society, there is not really any way to verify whether their depiction of this incident is accurate at all. Yeah. And sometimes it's just a, like you said, a simple choice. This is a a family that wants to live this way. And sometimes it's a choice to be isolated because you don't want people to know what's going on behind closed doors. Regardless of what went down, they're going to say this is what went down. And according to them, this incident was the last straw. Jocelyn had become afraid of the boy. She says, According to the Charlie Project, on October 23rd, Stephen called a crisis hotline and reported Jalik to be unmanageable. Around the same time, Jocelyn and Stephen began inquiring of child services personnel how to reverse the adoption. They were informed that a legal adoption is binding and cannot be undone. Jalik was theirs to keep. They were recommended respite care services. Respite care services is temporary institutional care of a sick, elderly, or disabled person providing relief for their usual caregiver. In other words, short-term relief with a little separation time between, in this situation, parents and Jalik. They decided to make use of this resource. This was not the first time that they did, though. The plan was for Elaine and Tom Person to keep Jalik at their home for a few days. After that, he would be sent to another respite home. The Persons, who had housed Jalik in the past, kept him at their home until November 1st. On the evening of Thursday, November 1st, Stephen picked Jalik up from the Persons' home near Albany. Father and son went to a Red Robin restaurant to get some dinner. Then, instead of returning to the family home in Greenwich, Stephen and Jalik headed to Stephen's parents' house at 11 Hill Street in a different part of Greenwich. This house was unoccupied at the time, as Stephen's father was a State Department diplomat stationed in Romania, and Stephen's mother was there with him as well. At the house, Stephen later told police the two spent the night, but in the morning, He went into the room Jalik slept in and found that the bed was stuffed with pillows, the way that kids do when they want it to look like someone was sleeping in that bed. Jalik was not there. At 7.30 a.m., Stephen found a note, and then he called the Cambridge Greenwich Police at 8.57 a.m. All right, just... Side note here, make sure you're paying attention. At 7.30 a.m., Stephen found a note. He calls the police at 8.57 a.m. This note was handed over to the police. It was in Jalik's handwriting, and it said, Dear everybody, I am sorry for everything. 
I won't bother you anymore. Goodbye, Jalik. Now, not on the same note, but on a separate sheet of paper, there was a word, Albany. Later, people suspect that this could be important. Now, the story of the parents of Jocelyn and Stephen, they were saying, hey, Jalik clearly ran away. He had gotten in big trouble with them and clearly felt horrible about it. The adoptive family sat down with police to discuss their child. Well, and when this family is supposed to be your forever home, and now they're trying to give you back after seven houses you've already lived in, this could be cause of, well, they they don't even want me. They don't want to try to work with me on any of the issues that I have. And now they're bouncing me back around. I, I don't want to keep doing this. So it gives a very plausible reason of why he would want to just leave the situation. Stephen and Jocelyn told Chief Bell and his officers that their son was very troubled and he was both suicidal and homicidal at the time of his disappearance. But, they said, they had not attempted to provide him with any counseling or medications for this. It's unclear whether they just did not believe in medical intervention or if they were exaggerating Jalik's condition. Stephen and Jocelyn tried to come up with some possible destinations where Jalik might have run off to. They informed the Cambridge Greenwich PD about Jalik's brothers, his half-brothers, in Albany. That makes sense. He's been there before. Maybe he wanted to seek them out or take up residence with them if possible. Right. He's 12 years old. You know, it's it, when you're 12, especially when you've been bounced around from a few different houses, mm-hmm. you might feel that it's not that difficult to just pick up roots and start elsewhere. Jocelyn said perhaps Jalik hitched a ride somewhere, maybe like New York City, because that was somewhere that Jalik had always wanted to go. Now, according to Stephen, Jalik had befriended some older teen boys while at the Parsons' home, and he said, well, maybe they he ran off with them. Or they suggested that Jalik was interested in his heritage and maybe he wanted to live with an African-American family. Well, we have a missing 12-year-old boy, and thus the search begins. The police took this case very seriously from the beginning, and that is obvious. Police Chief Bell sent out officers to canvas the area. Quote, if he got out onto a main road, somebody would have seen something, Chief Bell said. And working on the assumption that the child had gotten lost or, God forbid, harmed himself, they pulled out all of the stops. Police and other agencies searched a five-mile radius of the Kerr's home where Jalik was last seen by his adoptive father. They used infrared cameras, helicopters, canines, divers, and even drained a pond in their aerial land and water searches for the missing boy. Forest rangers joined in to help scour the dense wooded areas. Tips were called in from around the nation about supposed sightings. These were checked and run down. Police investigated more than 200 leads in the first few days. Because this was not Chief Bell's first rodeo, both the family's house and the where they actually lived and Stephen's father's house 
were both searched immediately. When they didn't find Jalik in the first couple of days, things began to look worrisome. November in upstate New York has very cold nights. Jocelyn and Stephen were able to describe what they believed Jalik to be wearing at the time that he went missing. A yellow fleece jacket, a t-shirt with a dragon on it, jeans, and black high tops. Police could not totally rule out suicide or running away, but since not a trace of Jalik turned up in any of the searches, things were looking dire. Chief Bell told reporters on November 12th, if he ran away, he would have turned up by now. And we just don't have a runaway kid here. Yeah, I mean, he's 12 years old, so it's not like he has the resources to just go start a new life, even though maybe he wanted to because of all the problems I think he was having. But he's also 12 years old, so we can assume he's a little, as far as street smarts go, a little naive and becomes a likely victim. Yeah, I mean, he could have taken off. He's he's a child. He's, the children are impulsive. And he is making irrational decisions or choices or, or, or the ability to not make good choices when he is throwing fits. So he may just be reacting to stuff going on and may have made some bad choices. Now, the adoptive parents in the family, they tried to pull the community together, as one would expect, immediately. After the kid went missing, they spent weeks putting up flyers and Jocelyn implored residents to post Jalik's missing flyer and keep an eye out for the boy. They held prayer vigils. They hired a psychic. They offered a cash reward. But pretty quickly, it became apparent that their public facade was not the same as their private behavior. Mm -hmm. Something's wrong here, police chief George Bell said to the newspapers. He said in 30 years of experience, a kid of 12 years old, and he says, I don't care what his mindset is. He doesn't fall off the face of the world. And chief bell came right out and stated that Steven and Jocelyn were not acting the way other concerned distraught parents acted in his experience. They didn't set up shop at the police station demanding action and answers. Now, Stephen claims to have called the police station 78 times, but Chief Bell disputes this. Right. He pointed out that Stephen and his wife agreed to be interviewed only with an attorney, and Stephen did not agree to be polygraphed on the advice of his attorney. Yeah, which we, we see that happen often, but you'd think they'd do a thorough search of the, the house. Yeah, there's some debate on how thorough the search of the houses were mm -hmm. because what's going to happen is that's really you're doing like a cursory search at that point in your investigation. You're really just going in there and looking for the boy himself. Right. A lot of times kids are just hiding somewhere. There's there's a, an amazing amount of calls where it's a missing persons case, little kid, especially the younger they are, they're often found in the home. Right. So you're just looking through these houses for this young boy himself, and that makes you move from room to room rather quickly. You're not really there looking for evidence of what could have happened to the boy unless things are obvious, any obvious signs. So later you're going to have the parents say, hey, 
we submitted to these searches on both of these properties very early on. Later, the police are going to have a different version of that saying these were just cursory searches. We didn't really get into any detailed searches of the home. And when we tried to go back, they said, no, 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 we don't want you here. Now, Jocelyn, on the other hand, did agree to be polygraphed. And I couldn't find the results of that, but my guess is <laughs> what? There's just a lot of things with these individuals that don't make a lot of sense. Like the one, the lawyer told the husband not to take a polygraph test, but it's okay for the wife to take one. It's just it seems very strange. I don't know. Could not find the results of that test, but, uh, I'm thinking that they didn't gain anything to further fuel their suspicions from that polygraph test. Right. The husband's refusal to cooperate and it goes beyond for, you know, there are people out there going right now. Well, who cares? He didn't agree to the polygraph test. It wasn't just that it was other forms of not cooperating, not answering basic questions, not being willing to sit down without an attorney present and not setting up, uh, information center at the police department setting up shop. I mean, some people will hunker down at the police station to keep an eye on what's going on and, and be fully aware and be the first to know what's going on with their child. That didn't happen here. So these things are setting off some alarm bells to, to some people out there. And as there were hints, there were also hints that Stephen Kerr had a problem with his own temper and had flown off the handle at Jalik in the past. One story Chief Bell learned from Jocelyn's mother, Jalik's grandmother, Barbara Reilly, who heard it straight from her daughter, was of a situation when Jalik was nine years old, and he was continually making some noise by like drumming his fingers or hands on the table, even though Stephen repeatedly asked him to stop. At some point, as the story goes, Stephen lost it and grabbed the boy, dragged him down to a creek, to the creek near the home, and was holding his head underwater. This until the wife intervened. Right, that's, that's called attempted murder. Stephen and Jocelyn hired an attorney right from Jump Street. They got a bulldog at a big local firm named Jeffrey McMorris. This lawyer said publicly that the Cambridge, Greenwich Police, and State Police were treating Stephen as a suspect and clearly embraced the idea that he had done something to Jalik rather than investigating if the boy ran away. McMorris requested that the FBI take over the investigation. Articles show that the FBI became involved in the case of missing Jalik Rainwalker by the end of November. And while Stephen and Jocelyn stopped cooperating with police and refused to participate in searches for their son in early December, they appeared in an exclusive interview with Anya Tucker of TV 10 Albany, in which they refused to answer most of the questions, instead declaring how much they were doing to find Jalik and were preparing for when he returns to their home. And then there was this. On December 20th, an article in the Albany Times Union states, Stephen Kerr, the last person to see Jalik Rainwalker, his adopted son, 
before the boy disappeared November 1st, has been seen around Greenwich and Cambridge tearing down flyers, advertising a vigil for the missing boy. Police Chief Bell says he receives several calls a day from people who are angered and perplexed by Kerr's behavior. Police sources and multiple eyewitnesses told the newspaper they saw Stephen removing the signs. Apparently, Stephen said that he wanted the flyers gone because the event they were promoting was organized by people who were slandering him. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. 
To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers to you, Captain. Cheers to all the people out there, especially the people in the back. Uh, I want to make sure that I point out that <laughs> we cheap seats. We hey, up there. Up, hey, those are the best seats. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that fought to get in. What did John Lennon used to say? He'd say that people in the ch- uh, cheap seats uh, clap your hands, and the people up front just uh, jiggle your jewelry. <laughs> well, I want to point out, Captain, that we relied on the excellent coverage of this case for our coverage of this case by the post star newspaper articles by Don Lehman, as well as the excellent coverage by the Albany times union. Wanted to put that in there before we got too far. Right. Let's try to make sense of this. So it's, it's the adopted father. So Steven. Yeah. Yeah. But to go around and to pull down flyers, it makes zero sense to me. I don't care what they're saying about you by having that flyer up there. It's bringing attention to the fact that your adopted son is missing. The whole point of anything is to find him safe or find out what happened to him. And by ripping down these flyers, 
and not talking to police and not doing certain things, it's almost like you're stepping away. And and we know with a lot of these missing person cases, you you need the story to be as loud as possible so you can get as much of a spotlight on the case. Right. And there are people out there that will argue, hey, this was not technically missing persons flyers. These were flyers advertising the the prayer vigil or the candlelight vigil for this missing boy. But you're spot on, Captain. Any any publicity is good publicity at, at this point. Right. And you would also think that your headspace would be so far gone from worrying about anything other than finding the boy, right? Like, wouldn't that just be consuming you at the time? Like, you don't need that sweet taste of vindication of ripping down flyers to get even with these people that you think are bad-mouthing you. You'd be too concerned about finding your son. But if this is true, then maybe this is a check mark that is verification of this dude not being able to control his behavior and reaction to things. Yeah, I mean, this guy's a shit stain. But I also, like, we go back to that house. You have an adopted son and you were saying an adopted daughter, correct? Correct. And then biological kids. And they're all sharing one room. They're all sleeping in one room. I just, and this has happened several times where we have these sick individuals that will adopt children and they abuse them. And I think there's some kind of law against some of these things. I know in certain states that if you, let's say you get remarried, your step daughter can't share a room with your biological son certain things like that that they have to if they're not blood relative that they can't share a room i know that's a law in several states you'd think that would apply also to um, people that are going through adoptions but it seems like they got these adoptions to go through and then they just said well we'll do whatever we want we'll live however we want um this just seems like a, a very dark situation that should have been investigated before the kid even went missing. If anybody knew to investigate it. So, I, I mean, I don't, to me, it's really pretty cut and dry, right? It's either a situation of this is a family making do the best they can. I mean, look, some people are forced to live in their cars for months at a time, right? But Either this is a situation where a family's just trying to make do and squeak by, or you're right. Maybe, maybe there's something, something weird going on here or, or it's just somebody milking the system. Yeah. Or a little bit of both. I mean, but I think the thing is, is most people that can't help themselves or can't help their family, they don't look into the idea of adopting more children. That's more mouths to feed. That's more bodies to house. What's but the he, advantage? He would, I get what you're saying, but we got to keep in mind he was with them for five years. So their situation could have changed when right. he was 12 could be much different than when he was seven. Yeah. Okay. So what we have here now is the boy still missing. Jalik still missing. And now we got this added threat of the cold weather and possibly snowy winter weather is on the way. Volunteers continue to go out looking and looking for Jalik, but nothing was found. And then Stephen Kerr looks like he was feeling the heat a little bit. He told the Times Union, 
claiming to be completely cooperative, by the way. He said he opened his bank and phone records to police and let them search the two homes that he had access to. We touched on this a little bit before. He said, quote, I've done everything. All they want to do is string me up and hang me, but they don't have any evidence. But Chief Bell said Stephen wouldn't even put his fingerprints on the door of the police station. He said he used his elbows to open the door at the police station in Cambridge when he came in to bring in some information. (sighs) Bell is on record stating, I mean, this whole thing is weird, end quote. Yeah, I mean, look, you just get that feeling, and especially as police officers or law law enforcement officers they're they're around this stuff often i mean to me it feels a lot um pedo like and and child abuse that's that's my gut feeling so what did the investigators uncover about Stephen kerr that clearly convinced them that he knew more than what he was saying well on the morning that he reported jalik missing he told them that he found the goodbye note as I'm calling it, from his son at 7.30 a.m. when he woke up. But, as we pointed out earlier, he didn't call the police until 8.57 a.m. What did he do during the hour and a half between finding the note and calling the police? He took a shower, and he returned some rented movies. Be kind, rewind. (sighs) He did admit this to Chief Bell. In all fairness, he wasn't, like, hiding this information. Well, in all fairness, you get charged... For the late fee. That's important. Yeah. But I think, I think, I do think it's important to point out he wasn't hiding. They didn't have to dig this up. Right, right. You know, but it does seem weird. An hour and a half goes by before you report him missing. And there's more. Well, no, no. the reporting the kid missing like an hour and a half later, not, not a big deal to me. If you're looking for the kid, if you're calling around, if you're doing some work, you know, they're not necessarily, you got a 12-year-old boy, right? This is of age where you could go to the store and let him stay behind and maybe babysit some of the kids. So when you see this note that your 12-year-old adopted son is missing, you go, well, let me look around real quick. Let me go to some spot that I know he hangs out at. Let me let take me, a shower and return some movies. Right, but let me <laughs> let me call some of his friends. If you told me he did all those things and then he called the cops, I go, okay, that makes sense. But taking a shower and returning some movies, it's ridiculous. Well, I, I, in full disclosure, Captain, I'm with you. The note by itself doesn't doesn't alarm me to the point of immediate panic. But when you compound that with, oh, I found his bed stuffed with pillows to make it look like somebody was sleeping in it, and I'm trying to reverse... You know, I'm a week away from trying to have reversed this adoption. Yeah, that's weird. You know what I mean? There's a lot There's a lot of stuff going on. So the other thing, too, is that the police did, they did have to uncover this. They uncovered video surveillance camera footage of a Chrysler town and country van that Chief Bell stated on the record was exactly like the gold one owned by Stephen's father. Remember the night that Jalik went missing or the morning, however you want to look at it, that he went missing, he and Steven were at Steven's parents' home, just the two of them. And this van that they found on the surveillance camera footage, 
it was seen driving by the Glens Falls National Bank branch on Main Street in Greenwich at 12.16 a.m. on November 2nd. That's the night that Jalik vanished. Stephen told investigators that he was asleep at his father's house at that time of night. Liar. Well, I mean, they've never been able to confirm that it was, in fact, the same van. But it looks identical, according to the police chief. Right. Investigators stated that Stephen refused to allow them to inspect the minivan to compare it to the one seen on the video. Of course he did. Of course he did. Further, Chief Bell subpoenaed Stephen's cell phone records, and they showed some inconsistencies with what Stephen Kerr told police about that night. His cell phone history showed that on the night of November 1st, after he and Jalik left the Red Robin, Stephen took a different route to the Hill Street house than he had claimed. Chief Bell said, we know for a fact he has lied to us about that route because the cell phone records state he was nowhere near the route he told us he took home. There was also very little cell phone activity that has been reported for Stephen for that night in question. He had one call at 8.15 the night before, and then there was no other call until he called the police at 8.57 a.m., the morning when Steven said he found the note. I'd like to know if his phone was even on or in service because with cell phone ping technology, maybe we would know where he went. So what we have here, captain is about roughly 12 hours. You know, what was Steven doing? Either he was doing exactly what he told the police he was doing, but it doesn't seem that way. Uh You know, he's at his parents' home with Jalik and they went to bed and Steven slept for the night or, or was it more of what we have evidence of that's just not true? The story might just not be true. If that's the case, then we have hours. Oh, we know he's when a liar he could have now. been co- covering something up or getting rid of something. Well, but right, but we're pretty clear on the fact that this guy's a liar. And if we think he's a liar, then law enforcement thinks he's a liar, and it's like, what else is he lying about? Well, let's get into that 8.15 p.m. call. This was very shortly after Stephen and Jalik finished eating dinner at the Red Robin. According to the Post Star, this call was from a friend of Stephen's who later spoke to police. This is some weird stuff. He told them that on the phone, Stephen was agitated and angry, and Stephen made several rude comments about Jalik. The caller's impression was that Jalik was in the vehicle and could hear the insulting and derogatory things that Stephen was saying about the child. In January of 2008, it came out in the media that Stephen and Jocelyn were continuing to receive monthly stipend checks for $1,500. Of course they were. These were funds paid to adoptive families of challenged children by the Department of Social Services to help pay for their care. Of course, Jalik had been gone for months by this point. All of this was enough to tip the scales, let's say. In a news conference on January 14, 2008, police named Stephen Kerr as a person of interest in Jalik's disappearance. 
This was based all on the information we just went through and the fact that he was the last person to see the child before Jalik vanished. Meanwhile, at the other end of January 2008, there was a big development in this case. An anonymous letter sent to media around the region that claimed missing 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker was alive and was picked up on Route 40. This was being investigated by police. The Post Star says they received the typewritten letter mm-hmm. on Wednesday, as did at least two Albany television stations. But the contents of the letter are a lot more in-depth than that. The letter, which contained no return address and was postmarked and was postmarked Westchester, New York, reads, Jalik still alive. Needed a foot soldier for this war on drugs. Picked him up Route 40 post 30. He's okay. No fake. He says, ask his mama and papa, who are the macaroni family. My cat name Diamond. Yes. Why does Franti yell fire? And then it says rapper question mark. I don't know what that means. Don't try to look. We are not there. Clearly this letter was designed to make it look like Jalik was alive and maybe even well and living somewhere else. With a crazy person? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, or who knows? Or was it supposed to be some code for something? There's no indication of who wrote it. I mean, your guess is as good as mine or anybody else's. I mean, did Jalik write it? Did somebody write it on his behalf? Is somebody holding him somewhere against his will? Is he living there happily? It's a confusing letter. Well, this, (laughs) I would really like to know if, if the initial letter that was supposedly written by Jalik was actually written by Jalik. And if this, and if that wasn't, then I would guess that this one isn't as well. And this is just to throw law enforcement off the scent. Well, scent. this was a typed letter. So, it, it, again, it's it's the person, no return address. It's kind of cryptic. It's right. typed. There's whoever, whoever gave this to the media, they're clearly constructing the thing with without the intention of you determining who authored this letter. Right. Now, Stephen and Jocelyn's lawyer, Jeffrey McMorris, jumped on this opportunity to say, Hey, I told you so, right? Their lawyer said (laughs) that the letter contained information that only Jalik would have known. So that's got to be proof that he's still alive somewhere. Right. And his clients, Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald were excited. And they said that it was a sign that rain Walker was still alive. And again, they're just, they're doing everything they can. This is what they're saying. And not only are we doing everything we can, but we're also preparing for the boy to return. Now, this letter arrived. Anyway, we were preparing for the boy to return when we're going to try to get rid of him anyways. And we we keep taking the money. We keep taking money for him, even though he's not around. Even though we're probably the cause of him not being around, but we're going to keep taking money. So it shows you what kind of people these are. Well, this letter arrived... It came about as the Kerr-McDonald clan was in the process of packing everything up to move to Vermont because Stephen felt that he was being 
persecuted by the police. In the meantime, as they prepared to leave, the family was staying at the Hill Street home of Stephen's parents, where Stephen and Jalik spent the night, that last night that Jalik was seen. Yeah, well, you got to stay there so you can monitor it, so you can monitor if the police are searching that area. But but then you're also leaving the other place abandoned to not keep an eye on it. So Yeah, but you... But if if you're the one responsible for him going missing, you know which property is important and which one's not. On February 7th, the Cambridge Greenwich police visited the family there. It seems as though this impromptu visit was deliberately intended to allow the police, you know, to look around, scout out what was going on in the house. They saw a computer when they were there. And this this is when they're like, uh-oh. They freeze the scene and they sent someone out immediately to get a search warrant so they could confiscate the computer. Yeah. Chief Bell would not comment on whether they planned on searching the computer to see whether it had produced the anonymous letters about Jalik being alive, but they want to search it for something. So we can assume that's probably what they're looking at amongst other things. But according to the post star newspaper, The letters were typed in a font and style that bore a, quote, strong resemblance to those used by Jocelyn and other correspondence to the media. Unfortunately, forensic examination of the letters themselves did not provide really any indication as to the source of the letter. As a result of this search, though, Jeffrey McMorris filed a notice of claim against the police department, naming Chief Bell specifically, alleging trespassing and false imprisonment. No lawsuit was ever filed and nothing was ever settled. It really looks like this captain was kind of a warning shot, you know, from the attorney to the police department, telling them to back off. Don't bully my clients. (laughs) Don't bully. Don't do your job. That's what he was trying to say. Don't do your job. McMorris was dramatically indignant about all of these unwarranted infringements on his client's rights. He was constantly making statements like the police conduct was outrageous and calling Chief Bell the ringleader of the witch hunt against his clients. He continued to declare that the police were focusing on the wrong person that Jalik was out there somewhere and that investigators were suffering from tunnel vision. I do want to get into a couple of people that, well, they seem to really truly care about Jalik. Let's talk about two women involved in this case who have principles and stood up for this unwanted child, despite the personal cost of doing so. One is Elaine person. She's the respite caregiver. She was an advocate for Jalik from the beginning. She was, of course, aware of his behavioral issues, but as a respite caregiver, she was trained to deal with them and look past them to the person that the child truly was. She says, quote, Jalik was a beautiful, sweet, intelligent, generous, and loving child with some behavior issues. According to Elaine, she and her husband and Jalik had a nice five days together. And when Jalik left her home with Stephen on that day, November 1st, she said he seemed happy. It certainly did not seem to her 
that Jalik was planning to run away or harm himself. And remember, she said she did not believe that the boy knew that his adoptive parents were trying to give him back. Right. Besides just offering insight into Jalik, Elaine had some important information for the investigators. She told them that during Jalik's stay with them, she and her husband, Tom, observed Jalik doing some homework assigned to him by his father. Remember, the whole, the kids were homeschooled. Right. And this homework assignment was to write a letter of apology to the other kids in his homeschool classroom, who he had hurt by this recent outburst. Elaine said that she did not read the note written by Jalik out of respect for his privacy, but she knew what it was and what purpose it was intended for. When she saw the news that Stephen Kerr was, you know, she sees this on the news. Kerr is holding up this same note as evidence saying that Jalik had left on his own volition. Mm. She's shocked. You know, she yelled at the TV. That's not a goodbye note. That is a homework assignment. Now, we could give Stephen the benefit of the doubt and assume that he simply mistook this letter of apology for a departure note, but remember, Stephen was the one who assigned Jalik to write the note in the first place. A really suspicious mind might even make the leap that Stephen had done so deliberately, planning to possibly later use the note to explain why Jalik had vanished. But it's almost like he put him in a situation, go here for a couple of days, one, write this note for me, I'm going to use that against you, but I'm also going to use this time to figure out how I'm going to get rid of you. I find the whole thing a little weird and I question a lot of it. I understand Elaine's suspicions, but the way that the letter's written, the, the way it's constructed does seem a little more goodbye-ish to me than apology, right? It says goodbye. It says, I won't bother you anymore. Um, I guess you could take that really one of two ways or or maybe even both. Mm -hmm. Now, Elaine made it her mission to find Jalik. She took a leave of absence from her job and started a task force comprising of her herself, her husband, Barbara Reilly, who's Jalik's grandmother and some of Jalik's other foster families. They were calling themselves the fine Jalik task force. They started a website publicizing Jalik's disappearance. It became a bulletin board of sorts, listing all sorts of suspect behavior and past transgressions on the part of Jocelyn and Steven. The website has been taken down since then, but we were able to find some excerpts from it. The website did not pull any punches. For example, Elaine wrote she believed Stephen harmed Jalik and caused his disappearance. From a section titled What the Police Know, it's alleged that the family applied to adopt Jalik and another child, basically in a bid to have access to the state-provided funds that accompanied such adoptions. And then after these adoptions went through, they moved to that inadequate housing situation with no plumbing or electricity. Right. 
It was said that Stephen and Jocelyn sent their own children to private school, but made Jalik and the others uh, make do with hand-me-downs, and they were homeschooled. Other posts on the website provided snippets showing what life was like there for Jalik. One says, one time after a series of ignored reminders, Jalik's mother banned him from using the outhouses for several days. Jalik's only option was to either use the woods, this around the house, or try to wait it out until the family went on some errands so he could use, you know, restrooms at these different businesses. Both Jalik and Jocelyn told Jalik's former foster parent that Jalik was locked in his room at night. They saw the locks on the doors when they visited Jalik. Jalik's grandmother also confirmed that the locks were there and used. Jalik's room also had no heat, according to this post. So the small portable heater was, I guess they put a small portable heater in the room at times, but would remove it, this to believe, believed to be a form of punishment. Now, of course, we should make sure that we don't believe everything that we see on websites, especially websites like this. Others on social media have posted that Jocelyn had the kids' best interest at heart, and she was trying to protect Jalik from her husband. Barbara Reilly is Jocelyn McDonald's mother and Jalik's adoptive grandmother. Barbara told the media that in the five years Jalik lived with her daughter's family, he exhibited instances of uncontrollable rages that were frightening to other family members. She also said that very quickly, very early on, she began to question the story that Jalik ran away because she did not like the answers she was getting from the parents to her questions. This comes to light and gets into some good detail from a 2016 post by Barbara on the Facebook page she started for Jalik. And chime in at any time here, Captain, if you need clarification on anything, because there are some names in this post that we have not yet introduced to the audience. Mm -hmm. She posted, Nine years ago today, Jalik was last seen by the waitress and manager at Red Robin Restaurant in Latham, New York. Just after 8 p.m., Jalik and Steven left Red Robin and Steven's parents' gold van. Twelve hours later, my daughter, Jocelyn McDonald, called me saying Jalik had run away in the night and she wanted me to drive to Greenwich. She says this was a hurried 45 miles to Steven's parents' house where she found Steven, Jocelyn, and Robin. Robin's one of the uh, is her grandson in the family room of the house. Robin had just showered. Jocelyn was heading into the shower and Steven was talking rapidly about finding a note and that he had gotten up early and looked in and seen what he thought was Jalik in bed. And then he had gone to shower and have breakfast. Steven was rambling and talking faster and faster about the respite home and the other foster children, and then returned to talk about his meal that he had the night before. Mm -hmm. She says, I asked questions about whether they'd reported Jalik missing to the police and whether they'd gone to the neighborhood houses 
searched the streets, whether the house and the garage and the van had been thoroughly searched, how Jalik could have left the house, through which door. You know, she's asking all the normal questions. Whether there was any clothing or a jacket that might be missing. The answers were that there was only one way Jalik could have left the house through the back door into the garage and then out the automatic door of the garage. She says, I asked about the noise of the garage opening and that there were extremely close neighbors that may have heard something. But the response was they didn't want to bother the neighbors with any questions. The front door was locked from the inside with a key that was still in the hall cupboard. There was no missing jacket or clothing that they remembered being in the house. They hadn't gone to any neighbors or searched the streets. They hadn't searched the house except the bedroom Jalik had supposedly slept in the previous night. There was no overwhelming sense of urgency or danger for Jalik, she says. Indeed, she says Jocelyn was concerned because Bevan and Kiana these are the the other children were in the homeschool and she needed to get them and take Robin to his doctor's appointment. She said that Steven said he had an office birthday party to go to after a half an hour, Steven and Jocelyn decided we all needed to go to their house on Raven way. And then she would get the kids together and then go to the son's doctor's appointment. She says that they all drove, but they took separate vehicles to the home. She said when she got into their house, Jocelyn was on the phone on her cell phone, calling the homeschool family. And Steven started circling around her, asking if she wanted breakfast and listing all of the things that he could cook for her. He was speaking rapidly, she says, and walking in circles. Now, once Jocelyn finished her phone call, She got Robin into his coat and was going to go pick up the other children, then go on to the doctor's appointment. Steven said he was going to his work to his boss's birthday party. She says she was stunned and said that she would drive around and look for Jalik, which is how she spent November 2nd, 2007. Nine years ago today was the last time anyone other than Stephen Kerr saw Jalik. Nine years of searching and investigating, still no definitive answer. Jalik was a wonderful and loving child and deserves to be cared for and kept safe. She says, I feel we are in a holding pattern, but one day the final piece will be found and we'll know what happened to Jalik and there will be justice. Our search for Jalik will go on until there are answers. We love you, Jalik. We miss you. Look, I wanted to go through that whole post there because it's important to note that she's pointing out that as soon as she was alerted to this missing child, as soon as she got involved, as soon as she's face to face with both mother and father, neither of them seemed to be concerned that the boy was missing. Neither of them seemed to be looking for how the boy would have left the home, checking with the neighbors, looking on the streets. They didn't want to bother the neighbors. Mm-hmm. She's the one saying, hey, this is what we should be doing. This is what we should be investigating. We should be calling this in. We should be doing that. Meanwhile, adopted mom is worried about getting the other kid to the doctor's appointment, getting kids to school, 
The dad is worried about, oh, hey, sit down. I can cook you some, some breakfast. This is what I had for dinner last night. I have to go to my boss's birthday party. So a whole lot of, I mean, there's no sense of urgency. There's no, there's no effort being made at that time when she walks into this situation on behalf of the parents of Jalik Raymond. Thanks for joining us. So much more to get into tomorrow. And we're going to be back here, so we want to see you in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't let it. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.